Well, if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and open it up. We're going to be in Luke 14 this morning. Uh, yesterday was um, 10 years since I've come to Seaford, and uh, I um, got a lot of texts from a bunch of you, and I appreciate that, uh, and I'm sure there's some of you who just didn't realize it, and you're thinking right now, well, I would have texted if I had known it, uh, and that's fine. Um, I, I just want to say it's been a real joy these last 10 years. Uh, I have... I've loved it. I have not been perfect. You all have been patient with your young pastor. And uh, something that I said yesterday on Instagram is that part of the beauty of pastoral ministry is that the shepherd gets to grow with the flock. And so um, I, I really, really do uh, appreciate um, the fact that when I came here, uh, I was an outsider, um, a hired hand, uh, but you have taken me in as a shepherd and as a family member, and I truly look at this church as my family. Um, as a pastor, sometimes you travel around and you think of places as your home church, right? You, you'll, you'll say, well, I serve at this church, my home church is back in the place where I'm from, where I got saved or got baptized, whatever. When I think of my home church, I think of the church that I pastor. And so uh, I'm thankful for you all. I love you all. I thought about preaching some sort of 10-year sermon and then I thought, no, I think the better thing to do is do what we've done for the last 10 years, and that's to trek on through the Bible. So um, I don't think there'd be anything more appropriate than to say, open your Bibles to Luke 14, and we're going to pick up where we left off last week. Scripture shows immense grace for sinners. Uh, the most repeated phrase in the entire Bible having to do with the character of God, and if you've read the Bible a little bit or just been around it, you probably would recognize this phrase, the Lord, the Lord. A God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. This is how the Lord revealed himself to Moses, and this phrase is repeated, particularly in the Old Testament, many times when describing God's character. The pattern of the Bible is that God desires to forgive people for their sin. And you see that right away. When Adam and Eve are sinning in the garden, uh, and then they run and they hide, God goes and he finds them. He pursues them. He covers their shame. He covers their nakedness. He prolongs their lives that his grace might abound. When the Son of God came into the world, he said this about himself, for God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Now, there will be a time when Jesus returns and the condemnation of uh, sin and everyone who committed it without repentance, um, it, it, will, it will consummate, right? The, the, the Lord will fully and finally judge uh, evil. But when Jesus came in his first advent, it was a mission to save. So the Bible reserves this grace for sinners, this undeniable grace for sinners, uh, this irresistible grace for sinners. But, at the same time, it does not provide much grace for those who would pervert the gospel of Jesus Christ. Those who would pervert God's way of salvation by uh, teaching things that are false. The New Testament brutalizes false teachers. Jesus called them ravenous wolves, blind gods, hypocrites, fools, whitewashed tombs, serpents, and he called them thieves and robbers. The Apostle Paul called false teachers peddlers of God's word. 
like, like, like cheap salesmen trying to push, uh, push lies on you uh, while, while keeping the truth behind their back. False apostles. He called them servants of Satan. He called them dogs. He called them enemies of the cross. He said they were conceited and that they understand nothing. He called them men of depraved minds, men who had gone astray and captives of Satan. The apostle John called them deceivers. Jude called them ungodly people. And maybe my favorite, unreasonable animals. We have seen Jesus tingle with the Pharisees multiple times in Luke, and it's happening again this morning. Why is he so confrontational with these guys? Why is it that the closer we get to the cross, the more he is butting heads with them? Why is it that he told his disciples they better beware of the leaven of the Pharisees? It's because they preached a false gospel. And just as the pattern of the Scriptures is that God desires to forgive sinners, the pattern of the Scriptures is also that there is little grace for false teachers. Jesus and his treatment of the Pharisees is in step with the rhythm of the Scriptures. I say there's little grace for false teachers because there is the opportunity for them to repent. There is the opportunity for them to turn away from their sin, to declare that the gospel they've been teaching is false, to embrace the Lord Jesus Christ and to be reconciled to God through his Son and to begin to preach the true gospel. We see this in Paul's life. He was the Pharisee. He was the sort of man that Jesus was coming up against. And Paul uh, repented and he became the man preaching the one true gospel of Jesus Christ. But if they don't repent, then there is harsh judgment reserved. There were four main sects of Judaism in the time that Jesus walked on the earth. You had the Sadducees who were really the wealthy, uh, wealthy, that's not a word, uh, 10 years in, still making up words, wealthy, elite, uh, kind of priestly class, ran the temple. You had the zealots who were political revolutionaries and their main concern was freeing Israel from Rome, getting them out from under that foreign oppression. You had the Essenes and the Essenes were the equivalent of Jewish monks. They lived uh, out in the wilderness away from everyone. They retreated from society. And then you had the Pharisees. They were laymen and they were from the middle class and they ruled the synagogues. The Pharisees came about in the 400 years in between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Their name means to separate. And they had the trust of the Jewish people more than any other sect. It wasn't even close. The Sadducees, they were detached from most normal people in society. You rarely had any interaction with them. They kind of stayed in their ivory tower. The Essenes, like I said, they were, they were wild people, man. They, they were out in the wilderness, and they were seen as extremists. And uh, the Zealots, I mean, many of the Zealots were basically the equivalent of like a modern-day terrorist who is driven by political motivations. They did some underhanded stuff, and any normal person really kept their distance from that movement. They didn't really want a lot to do with that movement, Uh, but the Pharisees, they were from the middle class. And so the people looked at the Pharisees like, these are our people. They actually had a lot in common with Jesus theologically. The Sadducees were theological liberals. 
They didn't believe in the resurrection. The Sadducees denied the existence of angels and demons. They denied predestination. They denied a future earthly kingdom ruled by the Messiah. But the Pharisees believed in all that stuff. But their application of that theology was a complete disaster. They had taken the Old Testament true religion of the heart and turned it into something that was totally external. It was all about how well you could keep the law. Not just God's inspired law found in the scriptures, but the man-made law that they added on to it. It was all about external righteousness. How well you work for God is what determines your eternal standing with God. How good you could play the game of morality. And their system, if you could play the game of morality well, you could not love the Lord, but still have acceptance with the Lord because He's obligated to love you. Because of your moral performance, He's got to love you. And God then becomes this sort of divine parole board. This is no different from Islam. It's no different from Hinduism or any other works-based religion made up by man. It's about trying to work your way to God. And it is directly opposed, fundamentally opposed, to the gospel of grace that Jesus preached. The true gospel of the kingdom. And so Jesus said that their teaching deceived people. It made them twofold children of hell. And we have a text like this one today where Jesus is confronting their deception head on, their false teaching head on. He's going to battle for the truth. Jesus is at war with false gospels in this passage this morning and those who would preach them. So Luke 14, starting in verse 1. One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and the Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, Which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. Now, he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place so that when the host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. He, also, he said also to the man who had invited him, When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. We've got three P's this morning to help us navigate through this passage. We've got a problem, we have a parable, and then we have the point of it all. So we start with the problem in verses 1 through 6. Jesus is invited to dine at the house of a Pharisee on the Sabbath. The meal would have been prepared in advance because of the Sabbath laws about food prep. And so this is the midday Sabbath meal that took place after worship at the synagogue. It's almost like getting invited over to somebody's house for lunch after church. Now, considering all the battles that Jesus has already had with the Pharisees 
in the book of Luke, why would he be invited to this meal in the first place? Why would they try to have him over? Well, we get our answer in the last few words of verse 1, right? They were watching him carefully. Greek word there is paratereo, and it means uh, what our English word spy means. Okay, They're not just watching them, but they're watching them with bad intentions here. They're spying on Jesus. They want to catch Jesus. Just like they were in cahoots with Herod last week to try to drive Jesus south so that he could go down into the area where the Sanhedrin, the ruling council, had authority and they could bring him to trial. Here, they're trying to trap him again. They hate him. They're actively trying to get a death sentence placed on his head. Now in verse 2, we learn... That there is a man who is at the dinner who has dropsy. Uh, this is a condition also known and, and more, more widely known now in our culture as edema. And edema is not a disease within itself, but it is a symptom of an underlying disease. And it's usually because there's some problem with a major organ. Your heart, your lungs, uh, your kidneys, your liver. Something has gone wrong and your body is retaining all sorts of fluid and you are swelling. Okay, so it's not a disease, it's really a symptom of a disease. So this man is there and he is very sick. Now why is he there? The Pharisees, not really known for hanging out with people like this, certainly not known for having them over for dinner. People who were sick, people who were suffering, they stayed away from people like that. They assumed God was cursing people like that for some reason. Did the Pharisees plant the man at the dinner with the hope that Jesus would heal him and then they could accuse him of breaking the Sabbath laws? Well, in light of the fact that they are spying on him, this seems like a likely scenario. And so Jesus, being the most brilliant man to ever walk the earth, does not even give them a chance to try and trigger the trap. He just flips it around on them and he makes a trap of his own. He says to them, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? Now here's why this is a trap. If they say... Uh, yeah, sure, you can heal on the Sabbath, which they're not going to say that. But if they were to say that, then they're signing off on the healing. So Jesus can go ahead and heal the man, and they signed off on it. So there's no trap anymore. There's nothing they can do. The trap is ruined. If they look at him, though, and they say, absolutely not. You, you can't heal on the Sabbath. And then Jesus goes, well, I'm not going to offend you here at lunch. I won't heal. Well, then the, uh, the trap never gets sprung, right? So no matter what they say... The trap is ruined here. So in verse 4, it says that they remain silent. And then Jesus heals the man. He takes the man and heals him. In the Greek, uh, it, 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 it insinuates that he grabbed him, like he laid his hands upon him. He grabbed the man and he healed the man. And then he sends the man away. And he turns back to the Pharisees and he says, which of you, because he knows they're fuming, right? Right? Which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on the Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? God's law did not prevent Jesus from doing this work of healing on the Sabbath. And nothing in God's law prohibited a father from rescuing his child or an owner from rescuing their ox on the Sabbath. In fact, not even the man-made laws of the Pharisees restricted someone from rescuing uh, their son or an ox from a well on the Sabbath. And so you can see Jesus' point here. 
If you can keep a boy from drowning in a well, and you can keep an ox from drowning in a well, then why can't Jesus keep this man from drowning in his own bodily fluid? What's stopping that? And for the second time in the passage, in verse 6, it says what? They could not reply to these things. It's beautiful, right? So twice now, in just the first six verses of chapter 14, the Pharisees are silenced. They have nothing to say. They are quieted by the wisdom of Jesus, by his perfect understanding of the Scriptures, his perfect application of the Scriptures. They cannot reply. In fact, this is one of the few times in the Gospels when Jesus has a confrontation, an interaction with the Pharisees, and they don't speak. I mean, look through these, these first 14 verses of chapter um, 14 that we're looking at this morning. The Pharisees don't talk. They can't. There's nothing they can say. The wisdom of God has completely shut them up. There's a muzzle on their mouth. It has stopped their tongue, and it's a wonderful thing. And so the problem of the trap set by the Pharisees has been solved. Now Jesus issues a parable. A parable about a wedding feast. In verses 7 through 10, he is speaking to the dinner guests who, like him, are attending this meal. And then in verses 12 through 14, he's going to talk right to the host who set the whole thing up to begin with. Now, the guests at the meal would not have been sinners and tax collectors and prostitutes. This man who has dropsy, he would have been uh, certainly standing out in the crowd. Everybody there pretty much would have been scribes and Pharisees. Like I said, the, the, the name Pharisee, it comes from a Hebrew verb that literally means to separate. They separated themselves from the sinners. They separated themselves from those that they considered to be the dregs of society. They were not eating meals after synagogue with Gentiles and, and tax collectors and prostitutes. They're eating meals with people like them. People who believed like them and people who behaved like them. And Jesus notices that as the dinner party starts, all these people scrambled to get to the best seat. They were all fighting each other to get to the best seat. Now, I'm going to give you a picture of the scene here, okay? Um, this is a, a picture of a first century Jewish dinner party, okay? So you can see you got this U-shaped uh, table or the table set up in a U-shape, and then you have these U-shaped couches around the table that they would recline on, and you get your feet away from the food, uh, and you uh, recline with your head closest, unless you're the one guy up in the corner who's got his feet right next to the food, all right? So uh, the host of the dinner party would have been the person dead center on the bottom of the U. That, that one in the middle uh, there, that is the one hosting the dinner party. To his right and his left would have been the most distinguished and honored guests, and he had handpicked them uh, to sit there next to him to his right and his left. Okay? And then around there, the rest of the guests would fill in. And so, when this dinner party begins, the other guests are rushing because they want to get as close to the host as they can. The closer you sat to the host, the more honored your seat was, the better your seat was, the further away you were from the hosts, the less you mattered. And so they're fighting, man. They're fighting to get to these seats. It's a mad dash. And so Jesus speaks to these people who are scrambling, like, you know, it's like parents, you know, waiting on Black Friday to get the hot toy, right? They're scrambling to try to get to these seats. And Jesus speaks to them, 
And in his parable that he tells, there's a wedding feast. The wedding feast was the most important meal that took place in the Jewish community outside of the, uh, the festival observances. When there was a wedding, everybody came together. It was a big deal. And at a wedding, there would have been multiple uh, U-shaped uh, tables and couches set up. There would have been multiple. And so in that situation, if you could sit at the head table where the, the wedding party was, right, where the groom was, I mean, where the father was, like th- that was a big, big deal. And then if you couldn't sit there, just try to get to one of the tables next to it. You don't want to be like way out on the wings, separated from the scene. So there's a wedding feast, and Jesus creates this hypothetical where somebody runs to get to the best seat. Maybe they sit at that center table. And then the host comes up and says, listen, you got to move. There's somebody here more honorable than you. There's somebody here more distinguished than you. Somebody's got higher standing than you, and you are actually sitting in their seat, so you're going to need to move. It's almost like if you go to like a sporting event, you know, I know none of you have ever done this, but you get there, it's, you know, it's the seventh inning, it's 11 to three, a lot of people left at, at the seventh inning stretch, it's bottom of the seventh, and you figure, I'm going to move down to the rich people's seats. And so you go down there, and then you realize the rich person really was just going to the bathroom, and they come back, and then you got to get up and leave, right? And you got to act like you don't know what's going on, right? You're like, how did I get here? What's happening? Like, oh, yeah, I'm sorry. You know, I don't know how I ended up down here. And you go back to your seat, right? It's embarrassing. It's shameful. It's the walk of shame back up to your cheap seats. I mean, it, it's what it is. This is the walk of shame these people are experiencing. I mean, for the host to come tap you on the shoulder and say, actually, you're not supposed to be sitting here, and you got to get up, I don't know how I got here, I, I'm sorry, let me, let me go back to one of the tables, you know, way over here on the side. It was a shameful thing. The biblical principle Jesus is illustrating with the story, you can find in Proverbs 25, do not put yourself forward in the king's presence or stand in the place of the great, for it is better to be told, come up here, than to be put lower in the presence of a noble. They would be much better off to take the lowest seat and to have the host come up and say, listen, I don't know why you sat over here, but I've got a spot for you at the main table. Why don't, why don't you come on over here and, and, and sit to my right or sit to my left or, or, or sit one seat over from that? Why don't you come over here to a more distinguished spot? Now there's more to it than this, right? This really isn't just about where you sit. This is about the heart. The people at this dinner assumed they were the spiritual elite. They assumed they were destined for glory because of their own goodness. They thought they deserved the most honored places, not just at a dinner party, but in God's kingdom. And how devastating is it going to be for them to assume this and to take a seat at God's table only for the Lord to banish them to the most dishonorable section of his sovereign rule, which is hell itself, because of the pride that's in their heart. We'll get to more on that in just a second. Jesus also has something to say to this host in verses 12 through 14. Um, He said also to the man who invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, 
for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. In, in the, the first part of the parable, he is pointing out the self-exalting intentions of the guest as they scramble for these seats, right? They want to exalt themselves. In verses 12 through 14, what he's doing is he's taking the truth of the parable and he's extending it to the host. Because the host has self-exalting intentions of his own. He only invited people who could reciprocate some sort of goodwill back to him in the future or people he's trying to trap and kill like Jesus or people who are a cog in that plan like the man who was dropsy. He didn't invite people there because he wanted to be hospitable. He didn't invite people there because he wanted to be loving. He wanted to be caring. He wanted to be generous. He only invited them there if they could give him something back down the line. And Jesus is pointing out how self-centered this is. And he tells them, have a meal where you invite the outcasts. Have a meal where you invite the people that everybody else assumes are cursed. The people nobody else will have at their house. Invite them, the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. Those people have nothing they can give you. Invite them. And it won't matter that they can't give you anything because your reward won't be with them on earth. Your reward will be with your Father in heaven. Don't, don't worry about whether or not other people in the community are going to look at who came to your dinner party and go, wow, I mean, he's a good man, he had good people there. They might judge you and say, how dare he eat with people like that, the same way they judge Jesus. But again, there will be reward with the Father in heaven. There will be reward when the just are resurrected. If he wants to keep having dinner parties for those and only those who can reciprocate favors to his own prideful heart, that's fine, but there's no reward on, well, there's reward on earth, but there won't be any reward for him with God. There will be no reward for him in heaven. And all this brings us to verse 11, which is the, the ribbon that ties it all up. It, it's the point, it's the key. There's three examples of self-centered pridefulness in this scene, right? You have the Pharisees laying a trap for Jesus, so eager to grip their position, to hold on to their prestige, to keep their favor with the people, that they cannot see who is right in front of them. They believe in a Messiah who will set up the kingdom of God, but they're missing the fact that He is in their midst. And they're missing it because they can't imagine that He would come and actually tell them that they are the ones that are wrong. In their prideful minds, there is no chance that their self-aggrandizing external religion is off base. No chance. And so you have them. Uh, a second picture of self-centered pridefulness are the Pharisees who showed up scrambling for the seats. Right, The better seat they got, the more pride they had to pour like gasoline on their blazing egos. It was all about self. And then you have the host. Only extending hospitality to people who are like him. People who can further his agenda. And he's as self-obsessed and glory-seeking as the people he invited. And so he issues this axiom to the whole party in verse 11. An axiom, by the way, is a saying that is so blatantly true that nobody even tries to argue with it. 
Like nobody even tries to mess with it because you just know it would be foolishness to try to disprove it. Everybody knows this is true. So he issues an axiom, and the axiom is this, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And this is the point of the whole passage. If you exalt yourself, you'll be humbled. If you humble yourself, you'll be exalted. By who? Who does the humbling? Who does the exalting? Well, he isn't named here, but it's implied. It's God. God is the one doing the humbling. God is the one doing the exalting. And this is not just true regarding etiquette at a dinner party. It's bigger than that. The way the people are acting at this dinner party, it's symptomatic of something else that's going on. Just like the dropsy was symptomatic of something else going on in that man's body, right? The swelling pointed to a sickness that that lied within. Their swelling of their pride pointed to a sickness that lied within them. Their hearts were filled up with a love of self. Their hearts were obsessed with their own glory and their own ego. All they cared about was advancing their agenda, making sure that their preferences are met, making sure their standing in the community is intact. They had a religion that was built on self-justification. God will accept me because I work hard enough. God will love me because I keep the law. God will favor me because I am morally superior to others. But in the true gospel, man is not the justifier. As we've talked about this morning, God is the just and the justifier. We see this in Romans 3. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Very famous verse. And are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood. That word propitiation is a good word for you to learn, and it simply means the wrath of God was satisfied by Jesus. That Jesus is a sacrifice that satisfied God's anger towards sin. Uh, So uh, God put Jesus forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that, listen, He might be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Before Martin Luther really embraced the gospel of grace, before he really understood the gospel of grace, he struggled with this question. Uh, He famously struggled with this question of how can God forgive my sin and remain a just God, a just judge? I mean, sin's got to be punished if God is just, right? No way around it. If you walk into a courtroom and you are the plaintiff, right? There's been, um, there's been some way in which the law was transgressed and that harmed you. Then you come to that courtroom and your expectation is that there is going to be a good judge sitting on the seat and that good judge is going to uphold the law. And if he does not uphold the law or she does not uphold the law, then you are going to be angry about that. You're going to feel wronged. You'll feel slighted. And what you will feel in walking out is the judge that was on the seat was unjust. So if God 
forgives sin and does not uphold his law, then how can he remain just? How can he justify sinners without being an unjust God who overlooks sin? The only way that problem gets solved is if God himself comes and dies in the place of sinners. Because then the punishment for sin has fallen on his son. Sin has not gone unpunished, right? It has been dealt with at the cross. Jesus has absorbed the wrath of God for the people of God. So sin is punished, God is just, but as sinners repent and put their faith in Christ for salvation, since Jesus was punished for their sin, they don't have to be punished for their sin, and God looks at them as if they have not sinned. Their sin is cast as far as the east is from the west. They are justified before God. So do you see how in sending Christ, God is both just and he is the justifier? But the Pharisees did not look to God for justification. They looked inward. They believed they could justify themselves with their works. They believed that their works made them just. And then they took that self-righteous false gospel that taught by moral effort, you can be the just and you can be the justifier. And they pushed it on everybody around them. They did not just exalt themselves at dinner parties, they exalted themselves in God's moral courtroom, filled with pride. Jesus grabbed and healed the man who was filled with his own bodily fluid, who was swelled up. And the only way these swelled up Pharisees are going to be healed is if they too would repent, put their trust in Christ, if Christ would grab their hearts, heal them of their pridefulness. And if this doesn't happen, then their self-exaltation is going to be short-lived. They will be humbled when the narrow door of the kingdom shuts. And they hear, depart from me, all you workers of evil. Remember what the Bible teaches us in the Old and the New Testament. Proverbs 29, verse 23. One's pride will bring him low, but he who is lowly in spirit will obtain honor. And then in James 4, 6, James says, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And so God actively opposes the proud. When someone thinks they don't need God because they're good enough on their own, they have placed themselves in opposition to him. So what do they need to do? Well, look what James says right after that. Uh, in his letter, verse 7, Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched uh, and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. you have a pride problem, what you need is to submit yourself to God, resist Satan, draw near to the Lord, cleanse your hands, purify your hearts, mourn and weep over your sin, and humble yourself before God. That's what you need. You don't need more self-esteem. That's not going to help. It's only going to make the pride worse. 
No, you need to humble yourself before the Lord. And what happens when you do this? Will he still oppose you? No, not if your humility is genuine. When we repent of our sin, when we humble ourselves before the Lord, when we come before God and we say, God, we agree with you. My, my, my sin is evil. You are right about my sin. I was wrong about my sin. My sin is evil, so I want to turn my back on my sin. I don't want to dwell in that anymore. I, I, I want to, you know, I, it used to be that when my flesh and when Satan said to, to jump, I said, how high? I don't, I don't want him to be the Lord of my life. I don't want sin and Satan to be the boss of my life. I don't want it to have a control over me anymore. And so I'm coming to you and saying, I can't fix this. I need you to heal me. I need you to fix this. I need you to forgive me of my sin. And I know there's nothing good in me, but I'm looking to your son. And I'm asking him to purify me. When you do that, and in your heart you are mourning and weeping over your sin, maybe actually weeping over your sin. And you humble yourself before God. He reaches down and he grabs you by his grace and he lifts you up. And he plants your feet on the solid rock that is his son, Jesus Christ. He exalts you. It's exactly as Jesus tells the dinner party. He who humbles himself will be exalted. He who humbles himself will be reconciled to God. And more, I mean, if it ended there, I mean, that is cause to rejoice for eternity. But more than that, more than just being reconciled to God, the exaltation goes further than that. He makes you a co-heir with his son. You ever, you ever read that and you're uncomfortable by it? I always get uncomfortable with that. Because in my heart, the idea of me being a co-heir with Jesus, it makes no earthly sense. I, I go, I can't imagine that. How can I be a co-heir with him? I'm a worm. How, how am I getting to share in the inheritance of the king? That's exactly what the gospel promises us. That is just how high this exaltation goes for those who would humble themselves. They will be seated with him in the heavenly places. In just a few weeks, we're going to get to Luke 15, and there's that famous parable of the prodigal son, right? If you've never read it, there's this, and I don't want to preach my whole sermon here, I don't have time uh, to, to preach a sermon within the sermon, but quickly summarize it, Cliff Notes version, there, there, there's a, a boy who wants his father's inheritance now and doesn't want to wait for his father to die, and the father gives it to him, and, and he goes off and he just squanders it, man, I mean, it's like... You know, it's the equivalent of like going off to Vegas and he's just, you know, he's hitting the slots and he's, he's buying prostitutes, everything bad that you could do in Vegas, he does, right? And so he goes to a far country and he dishonors his father and he's dishonoring the Lord and, and he gets to a point where he's out of money, he's eating pig food, it's just a disgusting scene and he says, man, I gotta go back. I gotta go back, at least I gotta be a servant in my father's house and he comes before his father and he's no longer that prideful boy who said, give me my money. Right? He comes to his father and he, he's, he's humbling himself before his father. And he says, just make me a servant in the household. Just a servant. And what does the father do? He lifts his son up and he exalts him. He, he, the boy humbles himself in repentance. He exalts his son. Put, his, put a robe on him. right? Put a ring on him. Let's get, let's get slippers for his feet. Let's, let's slay the fattened calf. Let's have a party. My son was gone, and now he's come home. And then there's another son in the story, isn't there? 
The other brother's outside the house, and he's stomping around, and he's all mad. All these years I've served you. I didn't even get a goat. And when the parable ends, I'm giving away the whole sermon, the whole punchline for the sermon, but when the parable ends, he's left outside the house, stomping around in his pride, left outside of the party, outside of the family. He exalted himself, and when the story ends, he's humbled. He's low. He may not see it, but he is. But his brother, who had exalted himself before, he humbles himself, and now, in his humility, the Father exalts him. And this is a picture of what it looks like when people turn to God, when people come to the Lord and they repent and they humble themselves before the Lord, he will put the robe on you and he will put the ring on your finger and slippers on your feet and he will slay the fattened calf and there is a party in heaven when sinners repent and they no longer are in opposition to God. But if you continue to oppose the Lord in your pride, you will be left outside the house stomping around and that's exactly where the Pharisees are at in their hearts. They didn't get it, and worse, they taught others a false gospel that hindered them from getting it too, that left them outside the house as well. And that's why Jesus crushed these guys. That's why he reserved his harshest words for them. He opposed them. He opposed their proud hearts. He opposed their false teaching that encouraged others to chase the same empty religion. Remember what I said at the beginning. Scripture shows grace toward sinners, has little grace for those who would pervert the only gospel that can save sinners. Why? Because they're not only false teachers who are opposing God with their pride, they're leading other people to live the same way. They're leading others to be in the same position of being God's adversary, of being outside the house. And so while God's nature is to desire to forgive the sinner, the Lord, the Lord, right? Abounding in steadfast love, compassionate. While that is His nature, it is also His nature to be filled with wrath toward those who would keep sinners from His love. And I think all this has to cause us as we close to to be introspectives this morning. Ask ourselves a couple of questions. Number one. Am I pridefully relying on my own works or am I humbly throwing myself upon the mercy of Christ? Good litmus test for this. When someone confronts you with a sin that they believe you have committed, what's your first instinct? Is your first instinct to go, well, who are you to say this to me? Or is your first instinct to go, yeah, but this is why I did that. Is your first instinct when someone confronts you with a sin that they believe you have committed or committed against them, is your first instinct always to justify yourself? To say, yeah, but. Because if you always tend to justify yourself as your knee-jerk reaction, pride probably has much more rule in your heart than you think. But if your reaction is, Hadn't thought about that. Give me some time. I need to process this, but I can see some merit to what you're saying, and I want to examine my heart. I want to make sure that that either if if I've done this, that I, I get right with the Lord on it, and, and then I reconcile with you. And and if I haven't done it, I'll come back and, and and try to talk to you about that too. But yeah, let let me take this in. That is what humility does in the face of that confrontation. It doesn't justify itself. 
Number two, another question for us to ask ourselves, are we practicing and proclaiming the true gospel of grace? Again, easy to assume you are, but examine yourself. Another litmus test. When people come into the church, if they are an absolute wreck, do you think, well, they're going to have to get themselves together before I love them? After a couple of years of going to Sunday school, I'll have them over the house, you know what I mean? Got to domesticate them a little bit. Can't just have a sinner like that over my house, not in the state they're in. Now, don't get me wrong, we love people where they're at, but we don't want them to stay there, right? We preach a gospel of moral change, a gospel of transformation. But do you withhold love until they prove themselves to be able to play the game of morality? And if God had done that with you, where would you be? If we treat people that way, are we really practicing and proclaiming a gospel of grace, the only true gospel, or are we a bit more like the Pharisees than we'd like to admit? How about a direct application of Jesus' teaching this morning? Do you only love people who are able to do something for you in return? Really stop and think about that. But when we humble ourselves and we preach and practice the gospel in a way that reflects humility, you know what it means? It means more grace for us. Because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. It means more unmerited favor of God. This is the promise of Scripture. That humility gets God's loving attention. So as the people of God, let us reject every single form of prideful false religion. Let not even a hint of it sneak into our lives and our words and our preaching and our living. Don't accept it. We don't speak of it. We reject it on every level. And then let us walk humbly with our God and point people to the Savior who reconciles them to the Lord so they can walk with Him too. Let's tell them that we were unjust and we had no hope of justification but we met the just and the justifier. And let's tell them with our lives and our words. Let's pray.